what a great song. What a, what a great hope we have as believers. Right? I, I'm reminded of the Pilgrim's Progress when, when Christian and, and faithful, they, they get to the end and the, and the shining ones are waiting for them and they cross the, the, the river to the celestial city. What, what a great hope we have. Um, and so we, we persevere because we have a sure and steady anchor and we are waiting uh, for that hope. Um, so let, let us persevere. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, which you may be glad to know is the last chapter of Hebrews. And so we have been uh, over 20, I think this is Sermon 28, um, but we've been working through the, the, this letter. It's been such an encouragement to me, and, and I hope to you as well. Uh, but, but as we come to, to chapter 13, we are uh, landing the plane. And so if you were with us last, last week, Will's um, alternate title was The Last Hoorah and the Last Warning. And that's true. That, that was kind of the, the end of, of the theological substance, and it was a great summary and recap of the letter. And so as we come to chapter 13, this is really the epilogue. It is the ending of this letter. And in chapter 13, as we'll see, Lord willing, over these next three weeks, uh, chapter 13 concludes with, with really a series of admonitions, a series of exhortations. And so this morning, we're, we're simply going to look at verses 1 through 6. And in these verses, we're going to see a, a series of, of really practical admonitions. And as we look at these, the theme from these first six verses is, is the theme of love. So these verses are a series of practical admonitions, all centered around the, the manifestation of love for the believers within the community. Okay, so we're, we're going to see a, a, a series of exhortations and calls to love. And so the, the title of the sermon is Let Love Continue, which comes from the, the very first verse there in chapter 13. And so, so that's, that's what we're going to look at. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, uh, then I'll pray for us, and then we will work through our, our outline in these verses. Uh, so Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and remember those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? Well, let me pray for us. Lord, this is your word, and we are your people, and we are thankful that you have given us your word, that you've revealed yourself through human authors that were carried along, that were inspired, uh, and, and, and wrote this word to us. And so we confess that we need to be shaped and convicted and encouraged and rebuked by your holy, divinely inspired, perfect word. And so would you, would you help us to see our reflection in this perfect word, and would we be conformed to what we find in this word? Help us. We need you, Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, this is, I think this is the first time I've ever done this, but I think this helps us better understand the passage. And so in these six verses, our outline has five points. 
Okay, so five points in six verses, because like I said, it's just a series of commands or calls. And so the outline is simply, love your brothers, that's, that's verse one, love the stranger, that's verse two, love the persecuted, that's verse three, love your spouse, that's where we get, that's verse, from verse four, and then the, the last point has two verses, which is love not money. Okay, I tried to keep the, the, the pattern the same. So the, we're going to work through those one, one point at a time, um, but, but that's how I see this passage laying out. So let's start there with love your brothers. There at verse 1, let brotherly love continue. This, this is the first call, and this, this really is the foundation of these verses. In, in fact, I think the rest of the calls are, are, are subsequent uh, outflows of this first call. Love your brothers. Now, this is not a foreign call to the New Testament. This is, if there is one New Testament ethic that every Christian ought to know, it is that we are called to love one another. And so when he says, let brotherly love continue, he's referring to love within the family. It's not as though this is a, a male-only boy club. It's not that only, only the brothers have to be loved. No, this is the family. In fact, if you have the NIV, the translation it makes the interpretation for you that, it, that it, the point is keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. That's the point. It's a, it's a family relationship that's in focus. And, and the idea is that it's a mutual love between members of the body. It's a call for mutual love to, to remain or abide. And like I said, this is not a foreign call to the New Testament. And th- this is the Christian ethic. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And this is verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's the way Christians relate to one another within the body of Christ. Love is a Christian virtue. Love is the Christian virtue, greater than, than, than all others. It is love. First, lesson, First Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul in verse 9 would say, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Later, First Peter, the Apostle Peter would write, chapter 1 of First Peter, verse 22, or verse 23, Since you have been, uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the list could go on, but, but simply the call is for Christians to love one another. The way that Christians live in relationship with one another is to be characterized by love. And this emphasis on brotherly love, it is distinctly Christian. It is. You, you shouldn't be able to find this love anywhere else on the planet. It is brotherly love. And it indicates the family relationship that, that marks out the Christian movement. This is how we are to be known. And so the way that Christians within the body of Christ relate to one another is that is of brotherly love, mutual affection. That's the call. And notice the call isn't to love, but to let love abide or continue, which means as he's writing to these Hebrews, as they're on the, on the verge of maybe forsaking Christ or, or maybe holding fast, he, he's saying love has been, brotherly love has been present within, within your relationships. It, it, you've already shown evidence to this. I, I've already heard about it. I've seen it. In fact, all the way back in chapter 6, he gives a harsh warning. And then he says, this is, this is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. So he gives a harsh warning. Then he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And here's this is what he says about these, this audience. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And so they have been loving one another. And so he's saying, let it continue. Let it remain. Let it abide. 
And, and it's also, we ought to note that the love shown for the saints in, in Hebrews 6 is evidence, it's not the source, but it is evidence of their salvation. So he says, we're sure of better things, things of salvation, and we're sure of it because we, we've seen the way you love one another. And so love for one another, love shown for the saints, is evidence of being born again. Right? You can't separate the two. To be a Christian is to have love for the brothers. And the author of Hebrews in 13.1 is urging them, appealing to them, let that love continue. And I think if, if we could, no one knows who the author of Hebrews is, really, the Lord knows, but if we, could, if we could somehow ask the author, he or she would say that brotherly love, it's not only a source of perseverance, which we've seen already, love one another, and it's like a, a, a group project to get to the end, but also I think he would say that a lack of brotherly love is evidence of failing to persevere. In other words, brotherly love in the life of a Christian, it's not optional. So if you're not loving one another, you're falling away. And so, and so if, there, there, if there's not a, a, a desire to love the brothers and sisters of the local body, there, there's a heart examination that's necessary because it is the mark of the Christian. 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever... Notice that word, whoever has been born of him. So whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is the gospel. This is a regeneration. You're born again. You put your faith in Jesus. You have new life. And everyone who now is reconciled to God and loves God, loves whoever else has been born of him. So that you can't love God and not love others who have been born of God. That, that's the Christian ethic. That is Christian morality. As Christians have one father, Christians have one elder brother, that's Jesus. Christians have one spirit. Through Jesus Christ, we've all received adoption into God's one family. I don't care what you look like, where you're from, what your past is. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're a part of our family. No exceptions. Faith in Jesus unites us to him and to one another. We are called to love one another. One Puritan author writing in London in 1855 says, listen to what he says, the power and glory of Christian religion are exceedingly decayed and debased in the world. Right? Could, could we say that now in 2021? The power and glory of Christian religion, so, so, so what, what makes Christianity appealing is exceedingly decayed and, and debased in the world. I think that's true, at least here in America. And the reasons, he says, for that state is that Christians aren't loving one another. So when Christians aren't loving one another, the Christian religion is exceedingly decayed and debased. And listen, here's why. Here, here's the, the substance of his argument. He says this because the life and beauty of Christian religion consist in the mutual love of them who are partakers of the same heavenly calling. The, the life and beauty of Christian religion consists in the mutual love of those who are partakers of the same heavenly calling. So do you want the world to be drawn to the Christian faith? Do you want your neighbors to love Jesus? Do you want those on, this, on, on Page Drive, on Fox Hill Road, do you want them to, to be drawn to Christianity? Do you want true religion to shine forth with power and glory? John Owen would say, the author of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue. It is an evangelistic aspect of the local church gathering. Others ought to see our love and say, I don't see that anywhere else in the world. They ought not to be able to go to the Rotary Club or the YMCA and be accepted and treated the way they are in the church. 
Jesus himself says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, not for the world, but for one another. And by loving one another, we love the world by showing them there's, there's something different about us. And so that's the first call. Let brotherly love continue. I think this is urgent now, especially coming out of a pandemic where we, there are members, brothers and sisters of this family who have not been with us for over a year. There's a disconnect that is unavoidable. So there are brothers and sisters who are disconnected. And they say, I'm not going back. I'm lonely. No one's reached out to me. Maybe you're the same. Maybe you're telling you that. Our call, me as a member, you as a member, is to show brotherly affections to them. Call them back. Show them you're, you're not forgotten. You're still part of us. We want you back. We, we need people coming back. And so let us love one another. Let it continue. But second, we move to verse 2. The, the call to love, this general call to love one another, there's some uh, more specifics given. Verse 2, love the stranger. So verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so verse 1 focuses on love within the community of believers. Verse 2 stresses a, a love or hospitality, a, a giving welcome to the strangers, to those outside the community. So so according to one commentator, hospitality, what's being called for here, is a concrete and personal expression of Christian love. So this is Christian love to those not inside the body. And it's intended to include strangers in a circle of care. And so the call here is for Christians to welcome the stranger, those they don't know. And so the Christian community is to be a community that welcomes the outsider, the stranger. I mean, think about in a culture... As he's writing, there weren't, there weren't many hotels. There wasn't the Hampton Inn down on Mercury Boulevard. There wasn't an, a, a website called Airbnb that you could just book a, a comfortable place to stay. In this culture, the, those places don't exist. If you've got to make a trip, the, the safest place was to be in a private, private residence, someone's home. That, that was where you could be assured of safety. And so he says, Christians show hospitality to the stranger. Now, now, I don't think, and, and no commentator really comes down hard on this, I don't think we can know whether for sure the assumption here is that the stranger is a Christian or a non-Christian. In fact, I don't think that really matters. I think the point is that the stranger is the person that you don't know. I tend to think he's probably referring to Christian strangers, but at the end of the day, I don't think it matters a whole lot because the call to hospitality, regardless of the recipient, is something that is expected of all Christians. Right? We welcome because if you're a Christian at one time, you were not welcome, and now you are welcome. And so you extend that. That, that. that was the call of the Israelites. If they have a sojourner, they show welcome to the sojourner because they once were not a people. Now they are because of God's work in their lives. And so they welcome others. And so for, for the Christians in, in this culture, there's no church building. The church will be meeting in homes. The expectation is that the Christians welcome other Christians. And, and so in that day, the apostles would, would, would travel. So, so maybe Paul on his missionary journey or another missionary traveling through. Or, or maybe there's a, a Christian from a, a neighboring town who's fled persecution. The Christians were to say, hey, you can stay with me. It doesn't matter that my home isn't really clean. It doesn't matter that I don't have a nice house. You have a welcome here because, because you're part of us. You're, you're one of us. You're in our group. So I, I think the, the emphasis is probably the Christian stranger because it shows the nature of the Christian family. And so when given the chance, Christians, we love other believers and we show them hospitality. This means that for the Christian, the home, no matter how big, how small, how clean, how messy, the home is a place of ministry. Do you have a home? You have a place of ministry. 
It must be. If your home isn't a place of ministry, you are neglecting to show hospitality to the stranger. And while I, like I said, I think it's referring to the Christian stranger, it's certainly true that the Christian is to be hospitable to the non-Christian too. So, so you ought to, as a Christian, show hospitality to, to the non-Christians in your life. There should be non-Christians in your life. You should welcome your neighbors, your hairdressers, your, your, your checkout line people. We, we ought to be welcoming people into our homes. This is the way that Christians love others. This is the way that Christians love our neighbors. When the opportunity arises, we, we welcome the stranger. And it's a display of Christian love that's hard to beat. And, and so one, one practical application, I think, for our local body is, is though we're, we're a small church, there are still members within this body who don't know one another really well. Maybe you'll say hi on Sunday morning. Maybe you say, oh, I, I know you. But for all intents and purposes, they're still strangers. And, and I would say to you, welcome the stranger. Get them out of the category of stranger into the category of brother. Have them over. And, and if you must, must, must refuse to, to let them in your house, treat them to, to lunch or dinner. But, but, but my hope, my aim, and, and Will, Will and Kim, what a great example they are. They've been welcoming members since they've been here. And so my hope is that we all, as members, would be gathering together in one another's homes. And yeah, I know it's awkward and it's kind of weird. It's like, oh, what do they like? They're not going to like my food. It doesn't matter. The fact of, that you say, come into my home, that is an expression of love. And if you're afraid they're, they're going to stay too long, just, just put, the, put the time limits on the front and back. Say, we've got to go at eight, right? They, there are no excuses that, that should prevent you from, from welcoming especially those within this local body. We are called to show hospitality to the stranger. And the reason behind it, I briefly comment, for thereby, he says, some have entertained angels unaware. It's kind of a strange statement. I don't think the point is that you better do it. You better show hospitality in case you have angels knocking on your front door. That's not his point. He doesn't care about the needs of angels being met. Right? That's not his point. Instead, his point is that to remind his readers of, of the Old Testament sta- saints, particularly, I think in this case, it's Abraham and Lot, and he, he says, hey, remember these examples of faith that we've already looked at. These faithful saints have always shown hospitality to the stranger, to, to be able to just show up. And so faithful saints have always been those who show hospitality. And, and in these cases, it was revealed after the fact, right? They didn't know angels were coming on the front. And it was afterwards, they said, oh my goodness, those were angels that I welcomed, right? The, the, it was after the fact that they found out that there were angels, in fact, visiting them. And, and it was their acts of hospitality where they were blessing others that in, in turn, at the, after they found out what it was, they, they were blessed that God would send messengers to them. They were ultimately the ones blessed because they were visited. So, so hospitality is the call. It's the non-negotiable for the Christian. Just as brotherly love is non-negotiable, hospitality is non-negotiable. In fact, this is one of the qualifications of an elder. It's not the elder's wife that has to be hospitable that the Apostle Paul talks about. It's the elder must be hospitable. It's not just Christian leaders, it's all Christians. This is how love manifests itself in the life of a Christian. But that's not all. Look, look verse 3. Third point, love the persecuted. He continues in verse 3. Now, I say persecuted because there's two categories of people. There's the, those in prison and those mistreated. So, so I combine those, say the persecuted. But, but there in verse 3, he begins, remember those who are in prison. Not only are we called to love those within the body and outside the body, verse 3, we're commanded to love those who've been separated from the body, namely through imprisonment. And the clear implication here is that there had been Christians who had been in prison because of their faith. They're not in prison because they robbed the, the Harris Teeter. 
right? We ought to care for the prisoner in that case, but, but this is Christians of the community who have been arrested or put in prison because of their identification with Christ. In fact, that's, that's part of the pressure that this community is feeling. As you run into the Hebrews, they're thinking, well, it'd be a lot easier if we just forsake Christ and, and go, under the old, go back to the old covenant. And so there were some of them who had been put in prison. And in fact, this is what the, the author explicitly mentioned in chapter 10, when he urged them to remember, he says, Remember, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. So they'd already done that. And he's saying, let it continue. Don't forget those in prison. Don't forget about the prisoner. Now think about it. In this context, it would be easy to do, number one, because if you're in prison, you're not part of the fellowship, right? You're not showing up, so it's easy to, to forget. But also, I think the more difficult thing that, 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 that must be overcome is that in this context, when he says, remember them, he means go visit them. The prison doesn't have cable TV. It doesn't have a workout room. It doesn't have a, a, a three-course meal. The prison is, is a cell, a place to hold you, and nothing else. And so he says, remember them. Go give them food and, and clothes. Go care for them. Remember them. So his call to remember is active. Identify with them. Be known as one of them. You couldn't simply remember them in your prayer closet and then don't do anything else about it. You had to go visit them. And, and, and the guards and the prison, prison guards would know, oh, here comes one of their, their Christian friends coming to give food or, or clothing. Right? There was a public price to pay for remembering the prisoner. And that's what he's calling them. Don't forget it. It's going to be easy. Right? Because if you just stay in your house, oh, oh they don't know I'm a Christian. Okay, I'm safe. He says, no, remember them, go. Because that's the price that the author of, them, author of Hebrews wants them to continue to pray, pay. Remember those who are in prison, he continues, as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated, which I think is just another category of person who's being persecuted or suffering for the name of Christ. Now remember all the way back in chapter 11, the hall of faith, there were those who were mistreated, now that's a category of, of, of faithful brother and sister. Sometimes faith leads to being mistreated. So, so I think there's just another category of person. Remember them, he says. Why? Since you also are in the body. And, and so remember the prisoner as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated since you also are part of the body. And so the, the assumption here, this language, this body language is, is not unique to Hebrews. It, it's New Testament language referring to the local church as a body. And so just like in some cases where the whole body benefits from each member serving and using his or her gifts, so we talk about spiritual gifts, the body benefits when each member uses his or her gifts, so also when one member is mistreated or one member suffers, the whole body ought to feel it. That's his point. This is the nature of a local gathering, of a local community, of a local church. When one member suffers, the whole body suffers. We ought to feel the pain of brothers and sisters of our community. I mean, if you don't think there's pain in this small local gathering, you need to give me a call. I'll share. I'll share some of the pain. Our brothers and sisters are suffering, and if you, if you don't know about it, you can't feel it with them. You can't bear their burdens with them, and that's what we're called to do. The whole body doesn't rush to fix the problem. The whole body doesn't say, oh, i got to know what to say to solve and fix this, this suffering. You don't do that. The, the whole body feels the weight of the suffering and says, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for, for, for I'm sure, what, what has been the hardest year of your life. Now, I, I, I know you didn't imagine to go through what you've just gone through. Or maybe I, I know 
right? Your, your spouse, he, he or she, they, they were really old, but, but I know it still hurts, right? That we have a family, brothers and sisters, that care for one another. And, and so in this context, the suffering is, is because of a, a persecution or a pressure, but, but the body of Christ suffers every day because we live in a fallen world and we've been given one another to bear the burdens together. As I thought about this, I, I, think, I think several of our Sunday school classes do this really well, but I wish it wasn't just Sunday school classes. I, I wish it was larger. I wish it was our, our body. I wish that every member of a Sunday school class who, who shares this community and this fellowship would, would expand their horizon and say, I'm part of a body. I'm not part of a Sunday school class. I'm part of a local church body because we need one another. So remember those in prison who are mistreated. Then he moves to a more intimate relationship. Look there at verse 4. He moves to the relationship of marriage. Now, I don't know exactly why he jumps from, from remembering the prisoner to honoring marriage, but these next three verses address two, two categories, two subjects, sex and money, which are and have always been two great hindrances or obstacles of Christian love. So he's going to talk about sex and money. And so first, the call from verse 4 is to love your spouse. And so, so that's the, the love focus here, love your spouse. Look there at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so the call here in verse four is let marriage be held in honor among all. Now who's the all here? The all here is all Christians. Let Christians, all who call on the name of the Lord, all who have put their faith in Jesus and and look to him and are, are reconciled to God through the new covenant that's been established in his blood, let all Christians, he says, Hold marriage in honor. In this context, it certainly would have been affirmed by all his readers. Right, This is the normal Christian perspective, has been throughout all the history of the church. It would have been affirmed, but, but he's saying this by way of reminder. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Marriage, he would want them to know, is not a second-class arrangement. So, so there are probably two, two ways that people would, would, would be opposed to marriage. Either... I can't get married because that'll, that'll hinder my service to God, right? So, so maybe that's one way. Marriage is not good. Or marriage will hindrance my pursuit of sexual satisfaction. I can't just have one spouse. Right? These are two different oppositions, but he's saying, let it be held in honor. Marriage is not something to be shied away from. It's not a fallback plan. Marriage is to be held in honor because marriage is God's very design for humanity, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the first man and the first woman were specifically created for coming together and forming a one flesh union. Marriage is the very reason that God created men and women. I mean, it's part of the created purpose. Now, there are certainly exceptions. We have to be careful. There are exceptions. There are men who will not marry, and there are women who will not marry. But those are the exceptions. The norm, the normative human pattern is that a man marries a woman. And that marriage, that coming together of a man and a woman, is a one-of-a-kind, unique relationship and exists solely as a result of God's creative design. So when he says, let marriage be held in honor among all, it's because God created it. We need to honor it because it's God's idea. Because that's the case, marriage must be held in honor. This is the only Christian position on marriage. This also means that to downplay the seriousness of marriage or to confuse the parties of marriage or to redefine the definition of marriage, to do any of these things is to dishonor marriage. Now, the author of Hebrews is calling Christians to hold marriage in honor. 
Honor the marriage relationship. But it's not just the relationship that's to be held in honor. The second part of the call here in verse 4 is, he continues, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So it certainly flows from honoring marriage, but it's more specific. The call here is for sexual purity. The, the call is for husbands and wives to love each other and to love, each, and to love only each other. Right? So, so the, the point is that marriage couples are to keep themselves exclusively for one another. And so he is clearly referring to the sexual aspects of the marriage relationship. He doesn't say let marriage be undefiled. He says let the marriage bed be undefiled. And the marriage bed has always represented what the marriage bed has always represented. And so the nature of sexual intimacy within marriage is to be guarded and kept pure. That's the call here. Just like man and woman were made for marriage, sexual pleasure was also made for marriage and only marriage. And so marriage, by God's design, is a a relationship of mutual love between one man and one woman that expresses itself in the act of sexual intimacy. And that act within the context of marriage is good, it's pure, it's undefiled. It's God-ordained. The problem comes when you want to love someone who is not your spouse in the way that you're called to only love your spouse. That is a defilement of the marriage bed. That is what is to be avoided, and that is what is to be avoided at all costs. Because did you notice how verse 4 ended? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For, here's the ground, here's the cause, the reason, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The defilement of the marriage bed, sexual immorality and adultery, right? These are two categories that, that cover all the bases. They, they have different, different points of emphasis, but sexual morality and adultery, both are, are emphasized here. And, and, and these things defile the marriage bed, and, and to pursue these things continually is a sure way to encounter the final judgment of God. One commentator puts it, puts it this way. One way to fall away from the faith is to give oneself over to sexual sin. Do you want to be sure that that you're going to abandon Christ and face God's judgment? Then then just give yourself freely to your sexual desires and pursue whatever you want. That's his point. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so the big picture being painted here is that our human desire for sex is to be fulfilled within the God-ordained bounds. That is, in fact, one of the very reasons that God created marriage, for a husband and wife to be sexually satisfied which means also that the pursuit of illicit sexual pleasure outside the bounds of marriage is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of God's good design for human sexuality, which is why the end result of someone who is sexually immoral or adulterous is God's judgment. To to, to pursue these avenues outside of the God-ordained bounds is to reject God. And you can't just live a life of, of total rejection of God and expect not to be judged. A Christian cannot continue in unrepentant sexual morality or adultery. The call is not to perfection, but it's a call to repentance. It's a call to a a pursuit of purity. A Christian cannot continue in unrepentant sexual morality or adultery. That person isn't a Christian. A Christian always eventually repents. A Christian doesn't continue calloused, hard-hearted, indefinitely. The person who does that is someone who's rejecting God and on his or her way to final judgment. And so, yes, Christians, we're not perfect. We repent. 
So the call from verse 4, broadly put, is to love your spouse. It's what Christians do. Just like Christians love one another, just like Christians love the stranger, just like Christians remember those in prison, Christians love their spouses, and they do so by honoring marriage and keeping the marriage bed undefiled. And to be sure, when this happens, there is an unavoidable positive impact on the Christian community. When every marriage within the community is honoring marriage and keeping the marriage bed undefiled, guess what happens? Everyone collectively begins honoring marriage and keeping the marriage bed undefiled. Marriages are better when the spouses, couples, are walking faithfully together in their marriage relationships. Not saying, hey, we have a perfect marriage. That doesn't exist. Right? I could ask the one who has been married the longest. Your marriage is not perfect. It doesn't exist. But we walk faithfully patiently bearing with one another, loving one another. And as we do that, we do so to honor the marriage relationship. And as we do so, we encourage others. That's what the author of Hebrews is urging us to. Then finally, verses five and six, our last point. Look there, verse five. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in this final call, it isn't so much something to love Instead, this is a warning against a dangerous love. And so keep your life free from this love of money. This is a dangerous love. So that's why the, the last point is love not money. And this call is paired with the previous call, right? Because both, so, so this is why I think these are grouped together. A pursuit of sex and a pursuit of money are both dangerous loves that lead to ungodliness. The love of sex and money have been enemies of Christians in this world since the fall of Genesis 3. Right? Our hearts are prone to, to worship both of these in, instead of God. And so it makes sense for these two dangers to be mentioned together. Both sexually immoral, both the sexually immoral and those greedy for money pursue, listen to how this one author describes it, a, myo- a myopic self-gratification that takes them outside the bounds of God's provision. Both the sexually immoral and those greedy for money, those who love money, both of these categories of people pursue a myopic self-gratification that takes them outside the bounds of God's provision. Meaning, I, I can't be satisfied with the spouse God has given me. I need something else. I'm not satisfied with, with the, the financial situation I'm in. I, have to, I, have to, I need more. So, so the danger with sex and money is that they are good gifts of God that make terrible gods in the place of God. Right? We say this, we say this, we've said it a couple times at least, good gifts make bad gods. And sex and money are good gifts that make bad gods. And so if they're ruling you, it is, it's chaos. Your life is out of control. So when sexual pleasure outside of the God-given bounds is pursued, it's a rejection of God. When a love of money or possessions drives one's life and hopes and dreams, it's also a rejection of God. I mean, think about this. A love of money amounts to accusing God of incompetence as a provider. I don't have enough. I need more. You're accusing God of incompetence as a provider and is therefore incompatible with a commitment to God himself. So notice the logic of verse 5. This is a a fascinating argument here. Notice how a love of money only grows when God is forgotten. So verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So who's the he? Who's the he who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you? Right? It's the Lord. It's God himself. This idea is found in both Deuteronomy 31 and in Joshua 1, where there's this transition of power. So Moses is on his way out, and Joshua is going to replace him, and Joshua is called to fill the shoes of, of Moses. Right? What a task. 
right? Moses' replacement. But in that situation, both in Deuteronomy 31, it's Moses, and then in Joshua 1, it's the Lord. But both of them say to Joshua in order to encourage him, it's the Lord who goes before you. The Lord's going to be with you. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. Don't be afraid. That's Deuteronomy 31, 8. Then Joshua 1, the Lord himself says, just as I was with Moses, Joshua, I am going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. So so in in order to encourage Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, I'm I'm not going to leave you. I'm not staying behind. I'm with you. And the incredible thing here, the point being made by the author of Hebrews, is that just as Moses and Joshua, and we can include any, all other Old Testament heroes, just as the Lord himself was with them, just as the Lord was their portion that they could not lose, just like the Old Testament saints, the point of the Hebrews is that every New Covenant believer possesses the same promise. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been reconciled to God by the high priestly sacrifice of Jesus, you possess God. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. You get God. You get the Lord. That's the logic of verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Now, what is it that we have in light of what I've just said? He doesn't say, hey, be content with it. So I have four young kids. We always have to say, hey, be content with what you have. You, look, look at all these toys. Right? So we say contentment. They say, I want that. It's like, no, no, be content with what you have. Hey, I want, I want that food. No, be content with what you have. So we, we trace their contentment to, to some other thing. So you don't want this thing, but or you want this thing. Hey, be content with, with this thing. That's what we do. That's not what he does. He doesn't ground our contentment in stuff. He doesn't say be content with what you have, like a, a house or a family or food, which, by the way, are all things that we ought to learn to be content with. He grounds our contentment in something much greater. He grounds our contentment in God. Be content with what you have. He has said, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. It's God that you have. What else could you need? You have God. What do you lack? That's the logic here. He grounds our contentment in God, and the reason he does that is because we can never lose him. You can't lose God. That's the point. Whereas material possessions are by their nature subject to loss and thus unworthy of commitment, God and his saving purpose are unchanging. We can be content with God because we're never going to lose him. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your house, no matter how nice it is, it's going to be gone one day. You're going to lose it. This building, we love this building. What a, what a gift of God over this past year to have this building. It's going to be gone one day. Our contentment can't be in our stuff, even as a church. Our contentment is in God because we're never going to lose him, no matter what happens. I don't, I don't care what your political views are in the trajectory of our country. Whatever you think, it's never going to satisfy the way you think it's going to. Only God can do that. And the good news is you have him. And so no matter what happens, you're not going to lose God. And so for the Hebrews, in the context where material loss was sometimes the cost of faithfulness to Christ, the author of Hebrews says, don't worry about your stuff. Don't worry about your possessions. It's just stuff. You're all going to lose it anyways. Instead of contentment in your stuff, be content with God. And because the Lord is our eternal possession, verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord's my helper. I'm not going to be afraid. What can man do to me? The natural response to having the Lord and being content in him, with him, is not to fear. The Lord is my helper. I'm not going to be afraid. What, what can man do to me? 
That this confidence goes much deeper than the mere loss of possessions. The call here, and I think what the author of Hebrews is preaching, is preparing his audience for, is the possibility of suffering that leads to death. Remember he said, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He just said that earlier. But they may, they may have to resist and suffer to the the point of giving their own lives. But even if that day came, he wants them to know, you're still not going to lose God. They can cut off your head. You're still not going to lose God. They, just like we, have reason for hope. We, just like they, have reason for holding fast. Let goods and kindred go. This moral life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so the final call of this passage is to find contentment in God, who is the possession of every believer. And so as we close, I think the point of the sermon could and should be applied in numerous ways. I mean, I think there are a number of applications. And hopefully, even as we've been working through these verses, through these points, you've been applying these commands, thinking through some ways that you might pursue these things. Right? This is a practical message. In many ways, the points for application are simply the, the outline points. So, so maybe go through your outline, and, and when you get home and say, how can I do this? Are there opportunities for me to do this? Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Welcome the strangers. Care for the persecuted. Love your spouse. Don't love money. Right, so so that, those are points of application, but as we step back, I think what we see from this passage, and when we look at the bigger context of the book of Hebrews, is that this life of love is the outworking of a life of faith. And so he's calling them to, to, to live lives of faith, and, and a life of faith is worked out in everyday life, in everyday relationships. One commentator, listen to this, this quote. These verses demonstrate that true Christian commitment involves living out commitment to Christ in the nitty-gritty of daily living. Beds and bankrolls cannot be separated from theology. This is where the reality of our relationship with God is manifested. The dusty and crowded sidewalks, the kitchen tables, the lunchrooms and lounges, and the places where we must confess his name and do good and share with others if we are to live authentically as believers. We must work out these principles in daily practice. And so, so the point of application is simply endeavor to live a life of love. As a believer, endeavor to love continually. Let, let's pray as we close.